history with the church at Corinth. Uh, As we mentioned before, the church at Corinth was plagued by many sins, uh, open and flagrant sexual sin, pride, arrogance, a lack of love for their fellow believers in Corinth, disunity, uh, and quarrels as we've already seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Paul had been there to the church at Corinth. He had subsequently left the church, and um, many uh, theologians and historians believe that he had, uh, because of the trouble that he had with the church at Corinth when he was there, uh, wrote an additional letter to the church that's not contained uh, in Scripture, calling them to repent and warning them of the impending judgment of God if they do not repent of the sins uh, that were present in their midst. Uh, the, the, the believers at Corinth had a, a very difficult time, I'm sure, in receiving this letter, as Paul states in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We won't go back through all of that, but the good news is what we find in chapter 7, that the majority of the church had that godly sorrow that worked, that worked out repentance in their lives, and they had repented and were following after Christ uh, in his word, following him to do uh, what he had called them to do. Of course... Um, the repentance in, in, as a church was not, was not fully complete in that there were still a remnant of people who were rebellious and who opposed the ministry of the Apostle Paul uh, and so on and so forth. We can see that in chapters 10 and following. Uh, but here in chapter 7, he has just commended them for their repentance. Um, in verse number uh, 5 and following, why don't we look at verse number 8. For even if it made you, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you as only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces Death. So he'd, he'd seen this work of the grace of God in them in bringing them to repentance. And in verse number 13, he says, Therefore, we are comforted. He was encouraged. He was comforted by the news that had been brought by Titus to the Apostle Paul. And so he sends Titus back to the church at Corinth, and he is encouraging them. He's writing to encourage them, to strengthen them in their faith, and to Uh, prod them on to be involved in the work of giving. This was something that, as we read chapter 8, we already saw that this was something that had been started prior in uh, the visits by Timothy, uh, providing for the need of the relief of the church um, abroad, those that were suffering, those who did not have, and those that were under persecution. So here in chapter 8, this entire chapter is given Um, to encourage them to give and also to commend the work of Titus to the church at Corinth, seeing that he was instrumental in bringing about and facilitating uh, this gift of giving on the behalf of the Corinthians. Now, the goal of this this, uh, sermon today is not to say, um, you need to give. Uh, I would would say that we, we know that. We have come in together as believers here at Sovereign Joy to give, to Uh, participate in giving to the needs of the church so that every need might be met. And I'm not here today to to deride anyone for their giving or lack thereof. Um, But Paul, in his encouragement to the church at Corinth, 
uses a couple different arguments to, to show that this is a, the logical thing to do. Uh, in the beginning of his encouragement, uh, he had talked about in verse number three and following the example of the churches in Macedonia, how that they were uh, faithful in giving and they gave to their power and beyond their means. There's a wealth of generosity on their part, he says in verse number two. But the first argument that he uses, it was, um, this is a work that we've already started. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in love, I want you to excel in this grace, this act of grace as well. It is not uh, sufficient for a church to, to uh, thrive in one area. We as believers ought to be thriving in all the areas that God has given to us to participate and to honor him, and one of these areas was giving. And so that Paul is saying that this is also a step that God has for you in your growth, your spiritual growth and maturation. Notice he says, this, I'm not saying this as a command. I'm not commanding you this is how much you ought to give or this is the extent to which you should be giving. This should be genuine. This should be of the depth of your hearts, of your generosity that you should give as God has granted you the ability to give. So that was the first argument he uses. The second argument that he uses, um, we'll be looking at here in just a minute. It's an illustration that the Apostle Paul gives. The third one is found in verse number 10 and following. Um, he said that this is something that you have, ha- you have desired to do. You have a desire to do this. You've already begun the process of uh, this process of giving to the churches who are in need. He says the readiness is there uh, in verse number 12. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. He says, you've been ready in the past, you've had a desire in the past to give, so follow through with that desire in order to show the, genuine, the genuineness of your love and that their need may be supplied. And he says, he, the last thing he, he uses is that this is not simply, we want you to be burdened so that another church can have abundance. He says, this is so out of your abundance, you can help meet their needs so that in the time of your need, that church may also be abundantly gracious and giving to you so that your needs might also be met. The second thing that he uses as an illustration to give and a reasoning to give, as he does in many different places, Paul often will use the illustration of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he does here in verse number nine. Let's look at verse nine again, and then we'll delve into this passage together. Verse number nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul's second reason that he gives them, and I, I, I would dare say the best reasoning that you can give and uh, on sacrificial giving, giving of yourselves for the benefit of others is the prime example is our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only had they heard of the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary and shedding his blood and in his resurrection from the dead, they knew it. They had experienced it themselves. They had been partakers of the grace of God in salvation. They had called upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith 
and by grace had received the gift of salvation that he gives freely to all who call upon him. So he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he kind of divides this up into three different parts. Number one, the first thing that we'll look at is the riches of God. The riches of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, though he was rich. Notice secondly, not only was he rich, but he for our sakes became poor. And the third thing that we'll look at is that we, with the purpose, the intention that we through his poverty might become rich. So when we say that he, Jesus, was rich, what do we mean? Do we mean that, that uh, Jesus was, had all of the, the wealth and material possessions and every good thing to be had, Jesus in his pre-incarnate state had these rich things? Do we mean that Jesus was a wealthy individual here on this earth? That he possessed great mansions and um, the equivalent of Maseratis, you know, back then. You know, he had the nicest horse on the block. No, we don't mean this material wealth that we often think of when we think of riches. Nor do we expressly mean that before his incarnation in his pre-existent state that he had this extent of material possessions. Of course, as God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is co-equal, co-eternal, uncreated, incomprehensible and almighty, equally with the Father and the Holy Spirit, as the Athanasian Creed states for us. So in his pre-existent state, he is God. Outside of time, for all eternity, in eternity past, so to speak, he is God. But we don't think specifically of those material possessions. You know, the, the psalmist says uh, about the Lord owning the cattle on a thousand hills. Certainly every possession, every part of God's creation is his and his alone. He has the right to determine what happens with it he, because everything was created for him and by him. So we see he was rich in his preexistence as part, I should say, as the second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-existent, eternal, uncreated, incomprehensible, and almighty with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We can think of the perfect communion between the persons of the Trinity and the love one toward another. Not only was he rich in his preexistent state uh, with the other persons of the Godhead, but he is rich in his position as creator, being the source and sustainer of all things. John chapter 1 and verse number 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that we see, everything that we can touch and feel and smell and see, everything was created by him and for him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17 also uh, nail down this, this fact as well. Speaking of the Son, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, 
and he is before all things, and in, all, in him all things hold together. There is a, a deistic view of creation uh, that says that God had created, but he kind of took his hands off, and he's just kind of letting it spin as it, letting it run as, a, as it sees fit. But Scripture says that by him, in him, all things hold together. Jesus not only created all that is, but he sustains and holds everything that is together by his power. So when we speak of the richness of Jesus Christ, we're not speaking of material possessions. We're not speaking of richness as we would consider it on this earth. We are considering his place and his position as God, as the creator, the source, and the sustainer of everything that has been, everything that is, and everything that ever will be. So he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now when we speak in terms of richness and poorness, I'm not even sure if those are words, uh, wealth and the lack of such wealth, um, When we say he was rich, he had all the position, he is God, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the source, he owns everything, that must mean that when we say he became poor, we mean that all the riches that God possesses, all of the cattle on a thousand hills, the power that Jesus Christ had as the creator and sustainer and the source of all things, He must have been dispossessed of that power, and maybe his standing as God was somehow altered when he came to earth. Certainly, right? Absolutely not. Of course not. We do not believe that when the Scripture says he became poor, that that Jesus Christ was stripped of anything. Rather, his the the poor uh, the poorness. I'm going to use poorness for the rest of the time together, even though that may not be a word. did not come in what was set aside or what was veiled during his incarnation. It was rather in what was taken on. We uh, can look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5 through 7 for this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to to be held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what we mean by the the poorness of Jesus Christ on this earth. It can be seen in his taking on himself human flesh, taking on himself human nature, the God of man, all God, and yet all man. Some people speak of um, the, the humiliation of Christ, or when it says poor, he became poor. Some people would say, well, just look at the life of Christ. And he was born, he wasn't born in a house, he was born in um, a stable in Bethlehem. When he, when he was born, his mother took cloths and wrapped him in those cloths and put him in a a feeding trough. Some people would look at uh, the offering that Mary and Joseph brought 
in Luke chapter 2 and see, they would say, see, they didn't, they didn't bring a lamb, they brought two turtle doves or two pigeons as was prescribed for the poor in Leviticus chapter 12. So certainly they were of the lowest class, they were poor, they had nothing, they lived in extreme poverty. Uh, I, w- I would say that that's not quite the case. Uh, we know at the time that Jesus Christ was born, it was the time of the census. that They were all commanded to go back um, and to be counted. Um, we know for a fact that, that uh, Bethlehem was overcrowded during this time. And so there was uh, where the place would be that people would find shelter and find rest. There was no room to be found. Every place was uh, full, overcrowded. Some people would even say that would account for the gift that they brought to the temple, not being a lamb, as was typically prescribed, but being two turtle doves, um, as was prescribed for the poor to bring. Um, some people differ on their, their view of this, but I, I think if we dive into the, the physical possessions of Christ and see, well, he didn't have a home. Luke chapter 9, uh, and verse 58 says, Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Some would say, oh, and we've all seen these little memes on Facebook and things like that. Uh, he was uh, you know, homeless, and they use all these other terms to describe Christ as if he uh, was a part of the most derided and uh, persecuted people groups. Uh, that's not quite the case. Uh, although, yes, it's true that Jesus Christ did not have a regular home, um, Jesus was often blessed in the homes where he went. We think of uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, for example, Jesus Christ and his disciples dining with them on several occasions, uh, teaching in the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha as well. Uh, we can see in, in other places um, that people traveling preachers or those that proclaimed uh, prophets and things like that, they would often be housed in the homes of people and their needs would often be, pro- be provided for them. We can look at the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the widow who had a, a room specifically for the prophet of God to stay in when he came through. This was something that was, that was looked well upon. Uh, and in fact, in, there's places in, in the New Testament uh, where he says, you know, don't take all of these belongings that you need for yourself, but when you come into a city, you find who is worthy to stay there in the city with and lodge with them if they are worthy. And if they're not worthy, shake the dust off your feet and leave. So when we think of Christ in his ministry, yes, Christ did not have a, a regular home, so to speak, that he went home to every night. He didn't have a lot of the luxuries of this life, as we would say, but even as a carpenter, as a tradesman, uh, Scripture says he was a carpenter. And when the, the Pharisees and religious leaders looked at Christ, they said, well, isn't, isn't this Jesus the carpenter? Um, now claiming um, the things that he's claiming about himself. Um, a carpenter was a, a skilled worker, a craftsman. Uh, they would not be of the, of the upper echelon, of the very wealthy and influential, but certainly they would not be of the lowest uh, class of citizen in that day. And certainly we can look at Scripture and see the, the miraculous uh, acts of God in the lives of many of those of the poorest of the poor, the beggars who either did not have the ability to physically get up and work, who were lame, who were blind, uh, those who were demon-possessed, who lived among the tombs, the beggars, we would say, yeah, Jesus wasn't of that class. He wasn't a beggar. 
So we, we can look at the life of Christ and see, yes, he didn't grow up in this, this uh, opulent, uh, rich environment where he had every single luxury of this life, but certainly he was not uh, a beggar. I think either way, if we focus on the, the possessions of Jesus Christ, I think we're missing the whole point of the humiliation of Jesus Christ and uh, his poorness, as a, so to speak. The poverty of Christ can be most beautifully seen in when we saw uh, John chapter 1 and verse number 1 through 3. He was, uh, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But in verse 14 of the same passage, it says, And the Word became flesh. If you want to see the poverty of Jesus Christ, if you want to see the humiliation of Christ, look no further than him taking upon himself a sinful, a, um, a flesh that is uh, weak and tired and gets hungry. Uh, look no further than him uh, humiliating himself to take that status upon himself, but becoming obedient to the Father, obedient even unto death. We see again uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 8. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ, as he grew up, he had to learn. Uh, he, the Bible says in uh, that, that passage where he was in the, the temple, uh, where he stayed back in Jerusalem in the temple and uh, were, were giving them a lesson or two in theology and how they should really be thinking about uh, the, the scriptures. Um, by the last verse of that, it says he matured in, in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and with man. But Jesus suffered the tedious physical needs of this life. He was hungry, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 18. He grew tired and needed to sleep. You say, God doesn't need these things. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't need food. God doesn't need water. But as the God-man, as, as uh, the Savior, he took upon himself this human flesh, this human nature, and he needed these things. Not only, not only that, but he was tempted. The book of Hebrews brings it to a fine point in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, bringing to our attention that Jesus Christ was tempted. Again, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We can look at the temptation of Christ in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted of the devil. This is where we see the humiliation of Jesus Christ. As I was doing a little bit of reading, I saw, I came across an article that was written by Al Baker. He's a, he's a Presbyterian pastor for many years. And um, he wrote a, an article on the humiliation of the Christ. And I wanted to read just a, a portion of this. He said, Theologians speak of both the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. I wish briefly to take up the issue of our Lord's humiliation. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. That is, Jesus purposefully, willfully left the glory and perfect triune love of heaven to become a man. 
He did not forfeit his deity, for that would have been impossible. He did, however, forfeit the glory of heaven, placing himself under the law, subjecting himself to everything any man is subject to, being tempted to sin just like any other man. In his humanity, he needed sleep. He became thirsty, hungry. He asked his disciples who it was who touched him when the woman with the hemorrhage sought healing. He who is rich became poor for our sakes that we might become rich through him. He who knew the perfect bliss and comfort of heaven as an infant in the night was cold. On the eighth day, he underwent uh, the painful Jewish ritual of circumcision. While having the spiritual presence and fellowship with his heavenly father, he nonetheless, while on earth, was deprived of his father's physical presence. He suffered throughout his earthly life. Surely his incarnation was a shock to his soul. The Holy One entered a world of perversion, violence, hatred, suffering, and injustice. For perhaps 20 years or so, Jesus labored as a carpenter. As a man, he had to learn his trade. The work was arduous, backbreaking, grueling, uneventful, and not at all glamorous. The work of a servant and not of a king. Surely as the time of his earthly ministry drew near, the weight of why he came began to bear down on him. He submitted to the baptism of John. He knew that many would misunderstand him. Even his own brothers thought he had lost his mind. The Pharisees and scribes were suspect of him. And as the day of death approached, their hatred and rejection of him escalated to a fever pitch. They said that he was a friend of sinners, that he was demon-possessed, that he was a blasphemer. One of his closest friends betrayed him, handing him over to the Roman authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Another of his friends, who declared him to be the Christ, who boasted of his own unrelenting fidelity, a few hours later denied him before a little girl. Jesus was unjustly arrested, falsely accused, unmercifully beaten, mockingly ridiculed, and horrifically executed by the cruelest of means. Yet he perfectly obeyed the law of his God all of his days. As a two-year-old, he never pitched a temper tantrum. As a pubescent youth, he never talked back to his mother. As a 17-year-old, he never once succumbed to the folly of evildoers. As a 25-year-old man, he never lusted after a woman. And as a 30-year-old carpenter, he never cursed when hitting his thumb with a hammer. He became a laughingstock, a spectacle, the very essence of shame while hanging on the cross. Although sinless, all the consequences of disobeying the law of God fell upon him. When we hear of someone being executed for a crime, we instinctively assume the worst, that he must have committed a horrible crime. And so it was with Jesus. The greatest manifestation of his humiliation was his death on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on his son. When we speak about the poverty of Christ, this is what we mean. Jesus Christ took upon himself human flesh, was subject to all things like we are, yet without sin. And he became obedient unto death, even a humiliating, painful death on the cross. So why did he do it? Well, our text today gives us the answer. 
You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Why did he become poor? He became poor for you and for me. He became poor so that we might have the riches of Christ. Some people would look at this verse and say, well, you know, it's in this context of giving money to the people that need it. And the Bible says that he became poor so you could be rich. So certainly this means that if you are a believer, that you will have everything that your heart desires, that you will be adequately provided for and wealthy beyond measure. God will bless you if you're a believer like that. I don't, I don't see that here in the text. Think about it. Paul is asking the church at Corinth to sacrifice of themselves, to benefit believers who are struggling, who are persecuted, who need relief. Certainly, if that was what God intended by this passage, that we would be rich through him, um, it wasn't happening. Instead of a life of wealth and health and everything else that is promised by many preachers today, Jesus promised his people a life of persecution. If they've hated me, they're going to hate you. If they've persecuted me, certainly they'll persecute you. The servant is not greater than his master or his Lord. Certainly that's not what Jesus is, that's not what Paul is talking about here. But much greater than any physical wealth that we could possibly have is the riches that we do have in Jesus Christ. I've written down just a few, and I'm sure time would exhaust me if I were to, to attempt to, to write out and to relay every single benefit we have in Christ. But just a few. First of all, we're loved by God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. We are loved by God. Secondly, we can never be separated from this love of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number three, we are joined together with Christ. Joined together with Christ in his death. His payment for sin is applied to us. We are, have the imputed righteousness of Christ, and he has taken upon himself our sin and atoned for our sin. Number four, we are not condemned. 
First John, or John chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. He that believeth not is condemned, or he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Our sins do not condemn us anymore. They are under the blood of Jesus Christ. We are justified. Our position is changed before God. We are forgiven of our sin. God has given us a new heart. We have access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can come before Him and confess our sin and seek forgiveness and bring our cares and our requests to Him. Not only so, but we are indwelt by His Holy Spirit. We have an intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because of our new heart, we have new desires. And God, through His Spirit, gives us the ability and the desire to carry out those new desires as we seek to serve Him and honor Him with our lives. This is what He's saying. He was rich, but He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. All of these things and so much more are ours in Jesus Christ. And I can dare, I can dare say we are truly rich. Maybe not in this world, but we are rich spiritually in this life and in the life to come. So how can we apply this to our lives? There's only a couple of things that I've uh, written down here. First of all, we must always be reminded that it's not because of our works, our lineage, or anything good in us that we are saved. It is only because of the loving kindness, the mercy, the covenantal love and grace of God, which is ours by faith. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God has chosen the foolish, the weak things of this world to confound those that are wise and mighty. And certainly, uh, we can look at ourselves and see the same is true. There's nothing good in me that God would save me, but God has saved me. And we can look to him by faith and be thankful for his sacrificial gift for us. Secondly, I think it was the point Paul was getting at here with the Corinthians. Just as Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for you, he took upon himself a human flesh, took upon himself a human nature, lived in this fallen world, yet fulfilled the law of Jesus, uh, the law of, God, of the Father. Just as he sacrificed himself for us, we ought also to sacrifice of ourselves for others. Husbands, sacrificing of yourself for the needs of your wife. Wives, submitting yourselves to your husbands as we saw today. Children, sacrificing that desire that you have to play that video game or read that book or go to the movies or watch TV to be obedient to your parents and to do what God has asked you to do. Just as Christ sacrificed himself for us, we ought also to sacrifice ourselves for others, both in time and of this world's goods. When we see someone has a need and God has blessed us, what is a can't remember the exact passage, but which of you seeing his brother have need and having this world's good, shut up your bowels of compassion? How does the love of God dwell 
in you. Paul said this is a, uh, an effort uh, that you should embark upon to show the, genuine, the genuineness of your love, both to God and to others. But we're blessed today, aren't we? We are rich because Jesus became poor. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us the remainder of this day. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives. And God, we thank you for the fact that you did um, send your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, to lay aside the glories of heaven, to take upon himself human flesh, to be subject to this awful, sin-cursed world, but to do it to fulfill your law and to atone for your people. And Father, we humbly come before you today and we say thank you. Thank you for enriching us in this life spiritually. Thank you for blessing us with a relationship with the Father and reconciling us uh, to God through your Son. And may we, just as Christ sacrificed for others, Lord, may we give sacrificially of ourselves so that others might be enriched. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.